Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Last Sunday, we looked at what the cross meant for Jesus. Palm Sunday, we looked at him on Tuesday of the Passion Week, asking, would I even ask the question, Lord, take this cup from me? No, it's for this hour that I came. It's for this reason that I came. And then we saw on Thursday night that he prayed that prayer three times. Is there any other way you can take this cup away? Is there any other way we can save humanity? And then on Good Friday, we saw the Father's answer. In Romans chapter 8, verse 32, he did not spare his only son. He delivered him up for us all. That's judicial language. He delivered him up to be executed because of me, because of you, because of our sin. Jesus died at 3 p.m. on Friday after crying out, it is finished, and then, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He breathed his last. He bowed his head. He was buried in Joseph's tomb. And for three days, a portion of three days, he lay there. And the question is, as Jesus cried out, it is finished, would the Father agree with the sacrifice that had been given? Would the Father validate that sacrifice? And on Resurrection Sunday, early as dawn was breaking, the Father said, yes, it is finished. My favorite Easter quote, the author says this, the corpse of Jesus just lay there in the silence of that cave. By all appearances, it had been tested and tried and found wanting. If you had been there to pull open his bruised eyelids matted together with mottled blood, you would have looked into blank holes. If you lifted his arms, you would have felt no resistance. You would only have heard the thud as it hit the table when you let it go. You might have walked away from that morbid scene muttering to yourself the wages of sin truly is death. But somewhere before dawn on a Sunday morning, a spike-torn hand twitched. A blood-crusted eyelid opened. The breath of God came blowing into that cave and a new creation flashed into reality. God was not simply delivering Jesus and with him all of us from death. He was also vindicating Jesus and with him all of us as well. By resurrecting Jesus from the dead, God was reaffirming what he had said over the Jordan waters. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Everything he does pleases me. His sacrifice on Friday pleased me. It is enough. Romans chapter 1 verse 4 says that, Jesus was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. According to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Romans chapter 4, verse 25 says, Jesus was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. He needed to be raised from the dead so that he would conquer sin, conquer death, once and for all done away with. So we saw what the cross meant to Jesus last Sunday. We saw what the cross meant to the Father on Good Friday. And now we have to ask the question, what does the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ mean for you 
and for me today. So often people just think it's a historical fact that happened so many years ago, but it doesn't really have bearing on the way I live my life. It doesn't change the way that I live my day-to-day moments. I think Paul in Romans chapter 8 would disagree with that. It changes everything. If Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then nothing matters. Nothing matters. Paul would tell us, nothing matters. Live in your sin, eat, sleep, and be merry. Tomorrow we die. If Jesus has not been raised, we are trusting in vain. There's no purpose to our faith. But since Jesus has been raised from the dead, then nothing else matters but this. Let's look at how this has an impact for our lives today. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, literally, since God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. So who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised from the dead, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Jesus who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, I pray that as we dive into these verses this morning, that your spirit would do exactly what Paul tells us he does in Romans chapter 8. He would intercede for us. He would plead on our behalf. We need his help. We can understand with a a fleshly sense what these verses mean, but we cannot comprehend them supernaturally unless we've been given the ability to see them spiritually, supernaturally. We need our eyes to be open. And so, Father, I pray that you would, in your grace, not because we deserve it, but because you are a kind and gracious God, grant the gift of illumination that we would see clearly what Paul wants us to see, what your Spirit wants us to see based on the words that he wrote. Father, I pray that you would bring salvation to souls today that people would see they don't understand these promises. They are not involved in these promises because they are outside of these promises, because they don't love you. And that your love for them would open their eyes, and because you first loved them, they would love you. And Father, for those that do love you, I pray that, that this sermon would be a balm for our souls. Father, there are many in this room that are currently suffering, have just come out of suffering, and we, are, we know we're all going to suffer. And sometimes in those moments, many times in those moments, we think, do you care? Do you love us? Or have we been separated from your love? And Paul will tell us this morning that because of the cross and because of the empty tomb, the answer to that question is no, 
You have not been separated from the love of God because nothing can. So give us comfort today. Give us a steadfastness of spirit and heart. And give us encouragement as you open our eyes to behold wonderful things this morning. We pray in the name of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So last Sunday, what did the cross mean for Jesus? This Sunday, or uh, Good Friday, what did it mean for the Father? This Sunday, what does it mean for us? What does the empty tomb, what does the cross and the empty tomb mean for us? We saw the Father's love for us, and we saw the Savior's love for us, and several times throughout our life, we might be tempted to ask the question, well, they love us, and I know that they love us, but I'm wondering if there's something that can separate me from that love. And you can see the hinge here is the resurrection in verse 34. Who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised from the dead. This all hinges on the resurrection. If Jesus has not been raised from the dead, none of what I'm going to say this morning absolutely matters at all. It doesn't pertain to us in any way, shape, or form. But because Jesus has been raised from the dead, all of the promises that we are going to see this morning are yours in Christ Jesus. But so often... We wonder, will God's love ever run out? What if I do something bad and I forfeit God's love? Is there anyone or anything that can nullify what God has accomplished at the cross on my behalf? It's precisely what Paul is going to answer. And the question posed that way, is there something that can separate us? There's really only two things, two categories of things that could potentially steal us away from God. Either people or circumstances. Those are the only two options. Are there people, is there some personal entity that can steal us away? Or is there some profound circumstance, some powerful trial that can steal us out of God's hands? Well, Paul's going to answer that. So, let's dive in in verse 31 by asking the first question. Can a personal entity steal you out of the hands of God? Can a personal entity, this is point number one, is there a personal entity that can take you away and separate you from the love of God? Verse 31, what shall we say to these things? These things are in verses 28 through uh, 30, that we know God causes everything to work together for our good, to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose, because those who he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So what are we going to say to that? What are we going to say to that? If God is for us, who can be against us? And literally, it's a conditional clause. Since God is for us, since he is for us, nobody can be against us. The most horrible words that we could ever hear in the universe are that God is against us. And Paul says, because of the cross and the resurrection, God is no longer against you. God is for you. God is for you. He's working on your behalf. No more penalty for sin. Brothers and sisters, if you love Jesus and you trust in him and his finished work at the cross and the resurrection, nothing that you go through in your life is a punishment for your sins. Nothing. There might be discipline that God gives to you to correct you, to bring you back, but nothing is ever a penalty or a punishment for your sins because all of your penalty and all of your punishment was put upon Jesus 
So you don't ever have to ask the question as you're going through life, I wonder if God just hates me right now. I wonder if God's against me right now. No, he is for you. He will always be for you. And he will never be against you because he was against his son at the cross in your place. There's no one that can separate you because God is for you. So Paul starts by in asking these questions, can anything separate us? Can anything take us away from God's love? Can anything separate us from the salvation that he's given through Jesus Christ? He starts by asking the questions, can humans do that? Can humans take us away? Is there any human entity, any human person that can steal us out of the hands of God? And verse 31 answers that. Because God is for us, no one can be against us. If you want to take somebody out of the hands of God, you have to be more powerful than whom? You have to be more powerful than God. And that's impossible. We cannot be more powerful than God. So, because God is for us, no human can be against us. And I love the way Paul phrases that, because I raise my hand and I say, I beg to differ, Paul. There's a lot of humans that can be against me. There's a lot of people that can be against me. Maybe you have friends who are against you. Maybe you have a spouse who's against you. Maybe you feel like people in this church might be against you. Maybe you feel like there's people in your life that are against you. And you think, Paul says, no one can be against me. Who can be against me? I can list a lot of people who can be against me. But here's what Paul is saying. Nobody can successfully be against you. Nobody can successfully be against you. They can try all they want, but they can never fully successfully separate you from the love of God. God is for us. Therefore, no human can ever successfully be against us. Okay. Okay, Paul, we agree with that. We understand that. What about God the Father? What about God the Father? What if keeping us saved is just too much trouble for him? What if he says up in heaven, man, I thought when I signed you up for my team, things were going to go better, and this is not the way I thought it was going to go, and you know what? I'm just done. So much wrong in that statement, right? But what if we are just too much trouble? As I heard one pastor say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, right? Blessed be his name. That's any verse for any occasion. Right? You can just pull out verses and say, well, Job said it and we'll say it for this. What if the Lord has given salvation and he's taken it away? Uh, if you think that's a proper use of God's word, see Marty next Sunday because we're going to be talking about <laughs> biblical interpretation. Maybe, maybe God's just fed up with me. Verse 32 is the answer as we studied on Friday. No, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Don't you think that if he gave his son to save us, then he can do whatever it takes to keep us? To keep that love flowing? To keep salvation secure? If he did the hardest thing, remember this a fortiori argument, from the greater to the lesser? If he did the harder thing by giving his son, what was the greatest obstacle standing between you and being saved? The greatest obstacle was not your sin, was not even God's wrath. It was God's love for his son. Would God be able to let his son go and pour out his wrath on his son? And if God the Father could do the hardest thing by saying, yes, I will not spare him, I will turn him over then he can do anything. Anything's easy. He's done the hardest thing. Turn just a couple chapters back, Romans chapter 5. This is the same argument, just in a different section. Romans chapter 5, verse 7. One would hardly die for a righteous man. Uh, start in verse 6. 
while we were still helpless, so we couldn't do this, at the right time Jesus died for the ungodly. One would hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, we were his enemies, Christ died for us. So if his death saved us when we were his enemies then will not his life keep us now that we are his friends? Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, he's done the hardest thing. Keeping you is going to be a very easy thing. And notice back in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, he will freely give us all things. He will graciously give us all things. It's all of grace. It's not that you get saved and now you have to keep yourself saved. It's all of grace. He will keep you because of grace. He will keep you because of his sustaining grace. Okay, so no human can take us out of God's hand. No human can steal us away from God's love. God himself will not pull back on his covenant that he made with us. He's not going to steal us away. Okay, what about Satan? What about Satan? Verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who will bring a charge? Well, again, a lot of people can bring charges, but the one who normally brings the charges, his name is literally the accuser of the brethren, is Satan himself. And he brings charges against you and me every day. The wages of sin is death. He knows scripture and he uses it. The wages of sin is death. Jesus, do you see Patrick? He just sinned. The wages of sin is death, Satan says. He brings a charge against me all the time. But Paul says God is the one who justifies. God's the one who declares righteous. So Satan brings a charge and says, Patrick is guilty. And God the Father says, yes, he is. But because of the work of the Son, I have declared him not guilty. And what is the answer to Paul's question? Who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? I love how he doesn't really answer it. He just says, God justifies. Who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? God justifies. That seems like a very strange response. But what Paul is saying is, anybody who brings a charge against you is a lower person, a lower entity than God. God is the highest court. The supreme court in all of the universe, God is the highest. And so God makes the last verdict. So anybody can bring any charge against you that they want. And it will fail. It will fall short because God, the just judge of the universe, sent his son so that he can declare over you not guilty. So Satan can't bring a charge. He brings charges all the time, but he can't successfully bring a charge that will condemn you. You can't get any higher than God's supreme court. He's justified us, and a just judge declares us not guilty. Charles Wesley says it this way in a hymn, Bold shall I stand in that great day, for who ought to my charge shall lay? Fully absolved through these I am from sin and fear, from guilt and shame. So Paul says at the beginning of Romans 8, there's no condemnation if you're in Christ Jesus. You're, you're covered You're sheltered in his blood, in his perfection. So Satan says all the time, guilty, guilty, guilty. And the father says, not guilty because of Jesus. So a human can't separate you. God himself won't separate you. Satan can't separate you. What about Jesus? What about Jesus? Would Jesus ever say, I'm done. I can't believe that I died for that individual. And I know some of you have felt that before. 
I know some of you have felt that sense of condemnation, like, God, why did you die for me? Why did you love me? Don't you see me? And if you feel that way, and I know many of you have felt that way, despair, condemnation, this verse is for you this morning. Who is the one, verse 34, who condemns? Who can condemn you? Jesus Christ is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. He died. Let's start there. He died. John Owen said that Jesus' death is the death of death. When Jesus died, death itself died. When Jesus rose from the dead, he conquered sin, he conquered death, and there is no power in the universe that could condemn you now. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. But now, uh, being revealed by the appearing of Jesus Christ our Savior, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Revelation chapter 20, verse 14. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of, the, of fire. This is the second death, the, the lake of fire. Jesus has power over that second death. Romans chapter 6, verse 5 through 10, we've been set free from sin, we've been set free from death. Therefore, death for us, Psalm chapter 116, verse 15, is a precious thing. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. Death has no claim on us. So who can condemn us? Jesus died, and he was raised from the dead, Paul says in verse 34. He was raised from the dead, not only conquering sin, not only conquering death, but ever living to make intercession for us. That's what Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 says. He is now at the right hand of the Father. So who can condemn us? Well, lots of people can. Lots of people can condemn us. But that condemnation has to go through Jesus. And every time somebody condemns you, Jesus says, I already bore their penalty. Look at my hands, look at my feet, look at my side. That's why Jesus alone still bears the scars in heaven. His glorified body still has scars. Our glorified bodies won't. But his glorified body has scars so that we can remember every second that we are in heaven, the only reason that we are there is because of those scars. So nobody can bring a condemnation against us that sticks Everything has to go through Jesus, and Jesus says, no, I already paid. So the formula of the gospel, based on just these few verses, is we have a just judge, plus a guilty sinner, plus the death and resurrection of Jesus, equals no condemnation. We have a just judge, we have ourselves as guilty sinners, we have the death of Jesus and his resurrection, and that formula equals we have zero condemnation to fear. No condemnation now I dread. That's why the hymn writer says that, and Anne can it be. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all that's in him is mine. That's verse 32. Freely with Jesus, we'll get everything. Alive in him, my living head. Bold now we approach the throne because of him. The resurrection is proof that the equation is true. The resurrection is proof that that formula is true. Because on Good Friday, Jesus cried out, it is finished. And on Easter Sunday, the Father said, yes, it is. So Jesus won't separate us from the love of the Father. No human can. God himself, God the Father will not. Satan can't. Jesus himself can't. There's only one other person. One other person that could. One other personal entity that potentially could separate themselves from the love of God. And that's us. What about ourselves? What about ourselves? 
Is there something that I can do that can negate God's love for me? Is there some sin that is so bad that God finally says, I give up, I'm done with them? What about us? That's why it says at the end of verse 34, Jesus intercedes for us. You and I need a priest. We need a priest. We need an intercessor, a go-between. We cannot stand before God on our own. And that's why Jesus, in dying and rising from the dead, has become our great high priest. He is our intercessor. So as you and I sin, he pleads his blood before the Father. No, don't condemn them. You condemned me. You say, well, yeah, but I know. I know this guy that used to go to my church. I know this gal who used to come to church, but they're gone. I know people who have fallen away and left the faith. And there's many that do that. Go to 1 John. 1 John chapter 2. John tells us the answer to what happened to them. 1 John chapter 2. Verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not really of us, because if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they were never really of us. So if somebody leaves the faith, if somebody walks away from the faith, it's not that somebody lost their salvation or separated themselves from the love of God. That's impossible. First John chapter 2 tells us, no, it's because they never were truly saved. Think of the parable of the sower. You remember the soils, the four soils? Two of those soils look like they're saved. The seed goes down, starts to bear fruit, starts to grow up, and then things choke it out because it wasn't bearing fruit for a long time. It wasn't steadfast in its, fruits, in its fruit bearing because the roots didn't go down into the grace of God. So I have to ask the question, is that you this morning? Maybe you heard the gospel Years ago, and you are bearing fruit. You're doing external deeds that look like righteous things. You're here at church. You come to church. You do nice things to people. You try to not sin, try to not do bad things. But your roots have not gone down into Jesus. They've gone down into religiosity. They've gone down into, I'm going to try and be a better person, clean up my act so that God will love me. If that's you this morning, then you will be the person in 1 John chapter 2 who will finally just walk away from church because you were never truly saved. You cannot break off the covenant that God has made if you're saved. You cannot break that covenant. The good soil and the parable of the soils just keeps on bearing fruit slowly but surely because the roots are in Christ. But if your roots are not in Jesus Christ then you will fall away. You will fall away. Not because you've lost your salvation, but because you never had it to begin with. So, there is the possibility. Uh, we have it in Jesus' sermons, the tares among the wheat. That Maybe you're in this room and you think you're saved, but you're not. You are a part of fellowship, a part of a church, but you've never truly understood the gospel as God saving you from his wrath because of your sins and you could do nothing to save yourself. And that love that God has given to you has changed your affections. Your spiritual taste buds will change. If you know that love, everything about your life changes. 
And I want you to see that love here this morning. So there's no human that can take away your salvation. God the Father can't. He won't. Satan can't. Jesus himself won't. And you can't. If you're truly saved, there's nothing you can do to rip yourself out of the Father's hands. Okay, so no person. No personal entity, number one. Well, what about a powerful event? Number two, that's the only other option. What about some powerful event? We have a personal entity. No personal entity can take you away from the love of God because of the cross and because of the resurrection. So what about a powerful event? And here, Paul is just going to go to the worst case scenario, just extreme circumstances. Verse 35, who's going to separate us from the love of of Christ? Will tribulation... That's outside pressure, squeezing you in, trouble and harm. Will distress, that's inside pressure, being squeezed from the inside, crumbling, fear, anxiety, doubt, dread, persecution, abuse for the name of Jesus because you love him and you follow him. What about famine? That's not no food in the land because of some drought or something. That's you have gone without food because of the persecution that's going on in your life for your love for the gospel. What about nakedness? Maybe they've thrown you into jail and they've taken all of your clothes away. They have not given you food, no clothing. You're dying in a jail cell. Peril, danger of your life being taken away and then sword. Finally, your life being taken away. Your head just being chopped off. Can any of those circumstances separate you from the love of Christ. And by the way, those are not just hypothetical. That's a list of Paul's own testimony. You can literally go through every single word and see Paul went through that. And he finally had his head cut off because of the gospel. So he says, just as it is written, for your sake, this is a quotation from Psalm 44, verse 22, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. We are being slaughtered for the gospel. But, Verse 37, can any of these powerful events take you away? No. Verse 37, in all these things, in every single event, in every single trial, in every single suffering, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Overwhelmingly conquer. Two Greek words that you actually know. Huper, which is where we get hyper. Uh, That's overwhelmingly. And uh, Nike, uh, where it just means to conquer, to overcome, to destroy. We hyper-destroy. We hyper-conquer. What does that mean, to hyper-conquer? Why didn't Paul just say, but in these things, we conquer? I love how Paul says, we hyper-conquer. We overwhelmingly conquer. What would it mean to conquer? It would mean that in these trials, they come against you, for a specific purpose of trying to separate you from the love of Christ. And if you were to conquer those powerful events, you would say, no, that won't happen. And that would be the end of it. You've conquered it. You've defeated that trial. You've defeated that act of suffering. But that's not what Paul says we do because of the gospel. You and I overwhelmingly conquer. What does that mean? That means we don't just defeat the trial, but we enslave the trial. We use the trial to our benefit. What it was trying to accomplish to take us away from the love of God, we don't just not make that happen, but we also then say, we turn around and we go, actually that trial makes me love Jesus more. The very thing that Satan wants to use to take you away from God, because we're overwhelmingly conquerors, we say it actually was used by God to help me love him more. 
How many times have you heard that testimony? We, a couple Wednesdays ago, we had that testimony from three people in our small group sharing trials in their life and how these terrible circumstances are going on, suffering like you wouldn't imagine are going on. And they're crying and they're weeping and they say, but through it all, it's brought me closer to Jesus. That is overwhelmingly conquering. No trial can ever separate you from the love of God. In fact, because you are in the love of God, those trials that Satan wants to use to separate you, they're actually going to be used to help you grow in your love for Christ. We're overwhelmingly conquerors. Nobody, nothing, no event can ever separate you from him. But in all of these things, God will use them and turn them into your triumph. And that makes perfect sense because that's exactly what happened at the cross and the resurrection. Cross, it looks like Jesus has lost and it looks like Satan has won. And the resurrection, God takes his own death and turns it for greater glory. So those who follow after him have the exact same formula. Satan tries to attack and not only loses in that attack, but doubly loses because God takes that very trial and turns it for his glory and for your good. Dear brother and sister, there is nothing in this life, even your greatest tragedy, even your greatest suffering, even your greatest tribulation, there is nothing in this life that cannot be and will not be used by God for your triumph. Note that well as you go through tribulation. But the question is, who are these promises good for? And they're good for the people that are described in verse 28. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. So let me just ask, do these promises apply to you? They apply to you if there's, there's two things that are the conditions of whether or not these promises, you can be an uh, overwhelmingly conqueror, you can um, never be separated from the love of God. There's, there's two stipulations, and they're given for us in verses 28 and following. We'll just look at verse 28. Number one, do you love God? Do you love him? We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. I'm not asking about a perfect love. We all have imperfect love for God. That's why we love Jesus, because Jesus had perfect love for God, and his perfect love for God has been placed into our account. So I'm not saying perfect love, but I'm saying highest love. I'm saying greatest priority. As Jesus said, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. What is your treasure, your greatest love? What is it that you love the most? What is it that you live for? What is it that excites you the most? What is it that satisfies you the most? The answers to those questions will show if you love Jesus or you love something else. And I'm not asking, do you love sin? Maybe you do, and maybe you need to repent and turn today. But I'm asking, do you love other good things that God has given more than God? Because taking a good thing that God has given and loving it more than God is turning it into a bad thing. So do you love God more than you love anything in this world? And the second stipulation in verse 28 is, are you called to those who are called according to his purpose? Are you called according to his purpose? How do we know that we're called? There's a lot of questions about this, but let me just practically put it into our situation from our perspective. How do you know that you're called? You'll know that you're called when Jesus has captured your attention. You know that you are called when he is somebody that you value above all things. You know that you are called when he is somebody that you prioritize. How do you know that you prioritize Jesus? This is not legalism, brothers and sisters. This is not legalistic thinking. How do you know that you prioritize Jesus? 
You cannot wait to be in this book because this is your Savior's words to you. You love talking to him in prayer. You love meditating on his word. You love reading his word. You love memorizing his word. You love fellowshipping with believers. You cannot get enough of being together with believers. When those doors are open, you are so excited to be here. Not because of a good sermon, not because of a good song, but because of a great Savior. And you can't wait to hear about him. You can't wait to tell other people about him. You just... It bleeds out of you. Just like when you're excited about a movie or you're excited about a video game or you're excited about uh, Disneyland and Star Wars Land coming out, which I'm very excited about. But you don't go around talking about those things because you're more excited about Jesus. Has Jesus captured and captivated your attention? And if he hasn't, or you're wondering about that, I want to give you two specific ways that you can deal with that today. Number one, talk to somebody. Talk to somebody and say, I'm not sure if Jesus has captured my attention. I'm not sure. How do I know? I'm not sure if he's captivated my desires and my affections, and I want him to. Talk to somebody. Talk to me. Talk to Tim. Talk to somebody. Don't leave without getting that question answered. But the second thing is don't neglect any time the church is open and the, and the word is open. Don't neglect those moments because these are the moments when, Lord willing, you are seeing Jesus clearly and his love for you and his doctrine over you and his theology about who he is and about who we are. And that will grow in you an appetite and a love for him. So is Jesus your greatest affection? If he is, then all of these promises are true for you. No personal entity, no powerful event could ever separate you from the love of God. So where does that leave us? Verse 38, it leaves us, number three, profoundly established. It leaves us profoundly established. These are powerful, precious, profound promises that we have because Jesus died and because he is alive forevermore. Paul says, verse 38, because I am convinced, I'm convinced are you convinced? Convinced, a word meaning persuaded, confident. I've come to a settled conclusion. I'm convinced. I have no more questions about this. I have no doubts about this. I'm convinced. What am I convinced about? Paul says that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers. Powers is uh, plural, it's always used um, dunamis, where we get dynamite from. It's always used in the New Testament when it's plural to mean miracles, supernatural events. Is there some supernatural event that can steal you away? Nor height, it's a word meaning uh, a star at the, the highest point of, uh, in the night, uh, the highest point that it gets in our atmosphere, in our viewpoint. Nor depth, that's the star at the lowest point. There's nothing from the highest point to the lowest point, nor any other created thing, no personal entity, no powerful event, will ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul's convinced. Are you convinced? This should bring us at least three things. I think it should bring us several things, and we can meditate on this today, and I encourage you to do that, do that with your family, with your friends. Talk about what this doctrine and theology, what this uh, effect of the cross and the resurrection has in your life. But this should bring us three things. Number one, it should bring us comfort. And I say these points in conclusion. We'll wrap it up here. This should bring us comfort. This should bring great 
comfort. Your love for Jesus will fail. My love for Jesus will fail. His love for you never will. John chapter 6, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. I will lose none of them. No one will ever fall through the cracks, and you will not be the exception. You will not fall through the cracks. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, you have been sealed if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you cherish him and you treasure him and he alone is your greatest priority and greatest desire and you trust in him alone and not your goodness to get to heaven. Then you've been sealed by the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, you've been sealed by the Spirit and nobody can take you away. Brothers and sisters, if there was a way that you could lose your salvation, if there was a way, then you would. If there was a way for it to happen, it would happen. And so if I'm going to make it to glory, to final glory, if I'm going to make it all the way home to heaven, I'm going to have to make it with a power outside of myself. And that's why these promises are yours in Christ Jesus. I'm going to have to make it with a power outside of myself because I cannot keep my love for Christ perfect. I'm going to have to make it with some other help. And that's why we have, if we had more time, we could go back to verses 26 and 27. The Spirit intercedes for us in Romans 8. And the Father has good purposes for us that he will never let us go. It should bring us comfort. Number two, it should bring diligence. It should bring diligence. It should change the way that you view your own working. There are things that we do because of this truth. Many people think, oh, we shouldn't preach this truth because it'll turn us into just lazy people. Oh, I don't have to worry about anything because nothing can ever take me away. If that is you, you've completely misunderstood the doctrine. It doesn't say, oh, then I can just sit in the lazy boy all day. It says, no, now I can get to work because I know nothing can ever take me away. There's nothing that can ever take me away. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about your, his calling and choosing of you. For as long as you practice these things, you'll never stumble. As you stay in the love of God, you're never going to stumble. Luke chapter 13, verse 24, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter it and will, will not be able to come. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 2. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you have received, in which you stand, by which you're saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you have believed in vain. And Philippians 2, verses 12 through 13, you know this passage. So then, my beloved brethren, just as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, work out the salvation that you've been given with fear and trembling, because it's God who is at work in you, both to will and to work. You work not to get saved, but because you've been saved. If you've been saved, you're going to get to work. Horatius Bonner says it this way. He's a hymn writer. He says it this way. Terror accomplishes no real obedience. Suspense brings forth no real fruit unto holiness. No gloomy uncertainty as to God's favor can subdue one lust or correct our crookedness of will. You can't scare somebody into obedience. You can scare somebody into behavior modification, but you can't scare somebody into love. But the free pardon, he continues, of the cross uproots sin and withers all of its branches. Only the certainty of love, forgiving love, can do this. The free pardon of the cross uproots your sin. Once you understand the love that God has for you, you love him back. And if you love him back, like 1 John says, then John 14 is true. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So if we understand the love that God has given to us, free, forgiven, beautiful, glorious, cross-centered love, then we'll love him back. And if we love him back, we'll keep his commandments. We'll live those out. He will become our greatest priority. So it brings us comfort. It should bring us a desire to pursue in diligence. 
And third and finally, it will bring steadfastness. It will bring steadfastness. If you understand these truths, it changes the way that you view everything in your life. I'll never forget, I went to a Giants game up in San Francisco. It's a baseball team. And I was wearing a Dodgers shirt. I'm not the biggest Dodgers fan, but I was excited because here I am, an L.A. boy. I'm up in San Francisco. And those two teams, by the way, are just bitter rivals. They absolutely hate each other. So here I am, stupidly wearing a Los Angeles Dodgers shirt at a Giants game. Very dangerous. And I remember thinking, I'm just... I'm in enemy territory, and I was, I was scared. I wish I had had a jacket. I almost asked my friend, can I borrow your jacket? But I thought that would look weird because it wasn't cold out. And so I just sat there, just scared out of my mind. I thought, I'm, I can't yell. I can't be like, yeah, when somebody hits a home run because everybody else is booing when the Dodgers are doing well. So what do I do? I kind of blend it in, you know, have my arms like this so nobody sees. And then a security guard walked down and stood next to the corner where I was sitting and just stood there. And he did his whole, you know, stand, look around, then turn around and just look back at the audience. Just always, I've thought, that's got to be the worst job in the world, right? You're just, your back is to the game and you just hear everybody with elation and excitement roaring and you're just, I wonder what happened. Guess I'll never know. <laughs> But I saw him looking back. I, I, I literally could have reached out and touched him. I talked to him for a little bit. And because I knew I had a security guard there, it changed everything. Nobody can beat me up now. I, I can do whatever I want. So I stood up. I started cheering loudly. I started booing the Giants and hooray for the Dodgers. Because what are you going to do to me? I've got a security guard next to me. You can beat me up, yes, but you won't be able to beat him up and he'll protect me. Brothers and sisters, if we know that we are secure, even in enemy territory, we can cheer and we can be loud. And we are in enemy territory, right? This is the uh, prince of the power of this air owns this world right now. We're in enemy territory. We can be loud. We can be steadfast. We don't have to worry because nothing can separate us from the love of God. George Matheson is a hymn writer. You know his hymn very well, A Love That Will Not Let Me Go. Maybe you don't know when it was written, why it was written. He was 40 years old when he wrote the hymn. A couple decades before the writing of that hymn, he was engaged to be married. And while he was engaged, he found out by a doctor that he was going to go blind. And his fiance heard that he was going to go blind. He's a pastor, and, and his fiance said, I don't want to marry a blind pastor. So she left him. And so his sister cared for him. They moved in together, his sister cared for him. And then his sister got married. And the night that his sister got married, she left to go on her honeymoon. He went back home all by himself, nobody to take care of him. And on that night, he took out a pen and he wrote these words. And he says he wrote them in five minutes. A love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe that in thine ocean's depths it flows, may richer, fuller be. 
O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not in vain that morn shall tearless be. Jeremiah 31 verse 3, God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love and nothing can separate you from that love. It is the love of Christ that holds us. That's why Paul says it's the love of Jesus. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So brother and sister, whatever might be attacking you, know this today. The love of God will never let you go. Because of the cross and because of the resurrection, we know for sure that we can never be separated from his love. And we know that because we don't worship a dead Messiah. We worship a risen Savior. He's conquered sin. He's conquered death. He's done the hardest thing. And therefore, keeping you in his love is a very simple thing for him to do. He's promised it, and he will make good on his promise because he's been raised from the dead. If Jesus has not been raised from the dead, nothing matters. But since he has been raised from the dead, nothing else matters. Brothers and sisters, his resurrection, because he's alive, this changes everything.